Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fuga A to Fuga Z. And joining me today to discuss Public Witness Program from the 1993 album In on the Kill Taker is a musician and audio engineer who, uh, well, I actually sat down to try to decide which three or four of his various credits I would use to introduce him, and I was starting to agonize over all the choices before I realized what a stupid waste of time. Everyone knows exactly who he is. It's Steve Albini. Welcome, Steve. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for asking me. It's really cool to have you here. Um, one of the things that most, more than casual Fugazi fans probably know, premier among the various Fugazi Easter eggs, is that once upon a time, uh, those guys got together, went to Chicago, and recorded uh, some songs with you for uh, songs that would become In on the Kill Taker. It's, uh, you've talked about it a little bit before on uh, podcasts such as Creative Control with our friend Vish Khanna. That's a mm-hmm. great conversation, and I urge people to go back to 2015, check that out. Ian Mackay kind of was talking with you and took the lead on s- talking about some of that stuff, and I'd, if you don't mind rehashing it a little, I'd love to hear just your side of it. Well, the germination of that whole session was, like, I, Ian and I had, had a lot of friends in common, and we'd crossed paths a number of times over the years, but we'd never done anything proper together, you know. Um, uh, I didn't know anybody else in Fugazi. Um, and they, he, Ian contacted me and said, yeah, we're going to do a new album. We were thinking about, uh, we're, we're, we're going to have this rehearsal session where we finish writing all the songs um, and we want to do demos of them. So it, it, we and we've never had a chance to work together, so we were thinking we would record these demos at your place. And, and I said, "Yeah, that's a great idea." I had just upgraded my home studio from eight track to twenty four track, so um, it was not really the shakedown cruise, but it was very early in the tenure of that studio as, as being a twenty four track like. It you know it went from being like an extremely modest uh, eight track home studio to being a fairly comprehensive twenty four track studio, um, and so the, while the Fugazi session wasn't exactly the shakedown cruise, it was very early in the the, the tenure of that, um, and so the I can't I don't remember if they played a couple of shows on the way out and that was the excuse for coming out or if they just, you know, piled everything in the van and drove out. I honestly don't remember. Um, but, uh, so they, the plan was to just to, to either record a couple of songs to see how we got, got along as a, you know, as a working group or to do demos of the entire album. Right. Right. Um, so we got started and everybody was getting along and we were having a good time and we just sort of kept rolling and we ended up record, essentially recording the entire album. They had never done like proper studio recordings without them being the, the end result without them being like the final finished thing. Mm -hmm. Um, they had done like sort of modest home studio demo recordings of stuff in the past. 
but they'd never like booked a studio and then not finished the record out of it. So we just pressed on like, once we got all the music recorded, then we did started, you know, Ian started doing all the vocals and then Guy did his vocals and then they added some overdubs and, hey, we still have a, a day or two left. Let's go ahead and mix it. So then we mixed the whole thing. And by the time they left, like I thought we'd finished an album and uh, they took copies of it with them at the time, just cassette copies Um and uh, listened to it on the trip, you know, on the whole drive home. They had a long drive back to D.C. And when they got back to D.C., like, Ian and uh, Joe had sort of, while they were listening to it on the way home, were sort of, sort of modestly dissatisfied with the sound of it, like, just the they they thought the sound quality of it was weird now bear in mind they had recorded primarily in the same place for a very long time so they were used to you know things being familiar and they came all the way out here to to work with somebody they never worked with uh you know and i you know and i do do some unconventional things in the studio you know i may have working methods that they were unfamiliar with or whatever um and so then they they just sort of had a band meeting. Like, they had everybody just, the, you know, they were sort of trying to be very frank. Like, are you guys happy with the way this sounds? And sort of one by one, everybody said, yeah, no, we're not happy with the way it sounds. Um, so then they called me and said, yeah, we're, we're not into it. We think it sounds weird. And I said, all right, well, let me try remixing a couple of songs, you know, with a little more time rather than, you know, these rushed mixes that we did just in whatever time was available. Um, I'll try to be a little more artful about the sound quality or whatever. So I did a couple of other, a couple of songs, remixes of a couple of songs on my own without them there and sent them over and they were still not into the way it, it came off. So they were, they were like, yeah, we're just not into it. We're going to redo it. And I, you know, I don't blame them. Like if you listen to the finished product, like the end, you know, the, there are like third and fourth generation bootlegs of the session that we did floating out around on the internet. And if you compare those, it's not really, you know, it's not really, you know, you're not really comparing apples to apples, but it's right. obvious that the finished, the final record is, you know, is much more carefully crafted, much more carefully made than those demos. And it sounds, you know, it's a great record. And the, the version that they did with me in three days, like would not have been a great record. It might have been, you know, it might've had its, it has its charms, but it's not, it's certainly not a great record. And the, and, uh, you know, everyone and everything about that band deserved for that record to be great. So I, I have no reservations about the way that all shook out. It really does have its charms. I got to say, because I've been listening, comparing the versions over the past week, and there's a lot to be said for the sort of the, the sounds you got in a lot of ways. And I mean, it's, it's raw and, and rough and high energy. And, if you're a fan of the band, like those are, those are the things that tend to get muted somewhat in the studio. Like in the studio, when things are, 
more carefully done. You have like even balance between the instruments. You have extra layers of overdubs and stuff, and uh, it doesn't it doesn't have the immediacy that seeing the band live does. And I think that you know a simpler, cruder recording can sometimes give you more of that impression, more of that sort of brutal first impression. Um, and I think that's that's true in some cases of the session that we did versus the final result, final released album. But I don't, I don't think that offsets the like some of those songs were musically more ambitious than what they've been doing in the past. And I don't, I don't think that came across as well in the version that that I worked on. Um, whereas when you listen to the finished record, it's obviously like you know they were they were taking that sort of aspect of it pretty seriously it's such a fascinating listen for like for people like me who aren't deep on you know how how you go about recording and mixing a bands i may have never thought about before what little differences can come up and of course i've never had the chance to compare like uh and an in utero that somebody else made right but having the chance right. to sort of compare these two is is really fascinating listening and I mean, I do fancy that when I listen to it, I hear something in those sessions that is that has your fingerprint on it, and I perhaps don't have the vocabulary to explain that. Like, is th- well, is, is there something I mean, like without giving away the shop? Like, can you explain what is it in those sort of like '90s rock records that you made that that made them sound like that, or their specific? Well, I mean, there are a number of there are a number of things. Like, I I tend like my default is to have a band playing live the way they would in a rehearsal room or on stage, whatever. In a lot of cases, um, the convention of the, of the day was to have bands play one instrument at a time and build up the, a song in layers, you know, starting with a metronome or click track. And, you know, then you maybe have the rhythm section play and then layer, other instruments on top of it and you build up a simulacrum of a live band as opposed to my working method, which is just to have somebody count it off and then they play the song as a whole band, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's that aspect to it. Like the, the records that I worked on in that era tended to be looser. That is the not as metronomically precise as a lot of other sort of more professional recordings. Um, I, I tended to go for a very, a relatively dry aesthetic that is not that not a lot of external effects. Um, again, just sort of in keeping with respecting what the band brought in rather than me trying to like decorate something uh, on top of it, you know? Um, and then specifically with respect to the drums like that was an era when there was beginning to be quite a lot of uh sampling and replacement and some degree of quantizing being done on on drummers Mm -hmm. where the acoustic recording of the drums was often kind of subordinate to the samples and artificial reverb and um production effects and stuff and i so you're saying that's like the do any of that so like you would take out the recorded kick drum and, and people would replace that with samples of kick drum hits basically. Yeah. I mean, and even wow. with a band like Fugazi who are an expert 
band with, you know, with Brendan Canty, who's a, a master drummer, right? Even a band like them, like in the studio, like some of their previous recordings had had things like that done to them, where like the drums were triggered samples hmm. with reverb as opposed to being, you know, just, you know, purely acoustic recordings. Right. Yeah, I I think that people who have listened to the sessions that you did, like if if they like them, one of the things they really like about them is how the bass and the drums sound. And um, to some degree, you know, I was listening on a couple of a couple of different mediums um, in the past week, and I noticed that uh, if you're listening to the the final product of In on the Kill Taker on a good like full range system, bass and drums sound great. But if you're listening on earbuds or something. It it sounds pretty thin, um, and there's some recordings that they managed to make the the drums and bass still sound really big, uh, even over earbuds. And I think yours does that somehow. Hmm. Uh, that's just uh, I'll be, being <laughs> frank. I've never listened to anything on earbuds, so it'll it's, <laughs> it'll be hard for me to about to to talk with any authority about that. But um, and like I said, all the recordings that are that are floating out on the internet are all they're all like you know, nth generation and who knows what sort of homebrew mastering somebody has done to those, you know, dub of a dub of a dub that they ended up with, you know? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would personally find it fascinating. I, like, would you hypothetically be up for it if they were like, you know what, let's, let's do a proper mix and release those demos uh, as a, well, we actually, we actually talked about that and I uh, got the reels back from Ian and I did a couple of test songs, you know, like, well, let's just see if there's anything of value here doing a proper mix of these. And, you know, and the, the problem is that it's the same music, but done worse. And, <laughs> You know, so uh, and I'm I'm completely on board with their with Ian's decision. Like on one hand, you could think like they they had a they have this uh, they have this live series, the Fugazi live series, which I think is brilliant, where people can like look up shows that they saw and find the audio of that show and be, you know, and sort of resurrect the experience of having been there at that show. That's like a, a really com complete or nearly complete archive of their live experience, which I think is amazing. Right. Absolutely. The secondary, the secondary effect of that is that it kind of, it kind of neuters the, the sort of marketability of Fugazi bootlegs. It sort of makes it so that, live Fugazi recordings are so ubiquitous that they're of no value. It's not, you know, like, so there, there isn't going to be an underground market for live Fugazi recordings or whatever. And in the same way, like on one hand, I could see the logic of releasing like an authorized version of that session. Mm -hmm. Right. But there is an aspect of that that's kind of creepy, which is where you're, you know that your audience would be interested in it. So you make this as a product and then it sort of seems slightly exploitative. Like you're, like you're exploiting people's enthusiasm for your band to sell them music that they already own 
but just in a slightly cast in a slightly different light. Hmm. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's a, a significant sticking point. And I, and I'm, in, I'm completely sympathetic to that. Like that's one reason that my band shellac has always tried to keep our records in print is so that, at no point would there ever be a reason for anybody to pay more than retail for one of our records. Like we've tried to keep our records in print so that you can always get one for what it, you know, for normal prices rather than having to deal in the collector's market or whatever. Hmm. Um, that has broken down to an extent in that the amount of labor required to make some of our records <clears throat> means that we're too lazy to do it a lot of the time. <laughs> so some uh, some of our records have gotten scarce as a result, but um, it's this, the same principle. Like you don't want to exploit people, or you don't want people to be subject to exploitation just because they like your band. Like that that shouldn't be a reason enough to exploit somebody. And uh, and the the few attempts that have been made, like the the a couple of times I tried to make, you know, versions of those songs, mixed versions of those songs that would hold up to the proper album versions or like at, at a minimum not be shamed by them. It, you know, the basic job that I did at the time just wasn't as good as the more careful, more considered recording that they did with, more time in a more familiar environment. Um, and also the songs had evolved some between when they, you know, like when I recorded them, they had just finished writing all of them. Like they'd sort of just like finished the arrangement and run through it to the extent that they knew how to play the songs. Whereas oh, they had embellished some of them and, and worked on some of the, some of the arrangements and made some modifications and made them a little bit, more sophisticated in the interim between when they did that session and when they did the final album session. So in the end, like they originally intended to come out and record a couple of songs or to do some demos. We got on a roll and we thought we had recorded the whole album, but in the end they turned out to be just demos, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so in the end they did exactly what they'd originally intended to do. Um, but there was just this sort of brief inter brief period in the in the interim there where where we thought maybe we'd finish the album and that wasn't the case. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. and I'm uh, I'm glad for your consideration uh, as far as exploitation. I mean, for me, I don't think I would feel exploited. So if you guys ever feel like doing that, <laughs> I say go ahead. But I I totally get where you're well, coming from. Well, I mean, from. I think I think if like when I did the sort of demonstration mix of a couple of songs like all right well this is what it would sound like if you know if we sort of considered it more carefully and spent a little more time on it uh you know with the benefit of hindsight or whatever and those were still unsatisfying mm -hmm. i think that was sort of that sort of that was the final nail in the coffin it was like you know people can still get this music we weren't happy with the, these versions back then. There's no reason to pretend that we're happy with them now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and what you say is true. I was—I don't know if you had a chance to, you know, compare the two versions of uh, Public Witness Program specifically um, recently, 
but I noticed, yeah, the lyrics are less fully realized in, um, in yeah. the Steve Albini version. Um, there, there, there are some cool things, though. I love how Ian's vocals are much more audible on your version, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. That's really cool. And uh, uh, there's, this, there's this cool thing Ian does on his guitar, right? There's this bass and drum breakdown in the middle of the song, and then Ian comes in with these, like, sort of triplets that he's chugging on his guitars, like chug, 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 and they're much louder on your version, which I also love. So there are some elements of, like, what happened with the mix uh, that I that I think you you kind of nailed. And I, well, I wish... I'll, have to, I'll, I'll be frank. If, if there was any, like, if there's any revelation in that, it, it's purely incidental because, uh, uh, like, I... All this material was new to me. It's not like I had any particular insight on it. I was just trying, you know, I just, like I do with any session, I try to present it so that you can hear all the elements of it and let the band direct the aesthetic. So, um, yeah, yeah. It, didn't, it didn't end up, like, I, I can't take any credit for whatever subtle charms you find in in the version that I did. I do remember that song. I do I do remember when they were working on that song there was like a very specific <clears throat> reference that Guy made where they wanted it they wanted the vocals to have a slightly frantic quality and his the way he described it was like early HR meaning like early bad brains that sort of mile a minute super quick diction like really sort of barking stentorian vocal that HR had on those early Bad Brains records where it was like, hmm. you know, super rapid fire. Um, and then, uh, you know, so he wanted it to have that sort of high key, high energy, really sort of sneering quality. Um, and, I mean, I got the reference, but I, I, I don't, I mean, very, very few things can compare to the personality of those early Bad Brains recordings. Yeah, I, that's, that's interesting because I get what he's saying. And in, in your version, he's almost like a little slurring his, his words in an attempt to like, to go fast and, and get his thoughts out. Um, but yeah, the, the interesting thing to me is after they recorded uh, what would become In on the Kill Taker with, with Donzi and Tara... Um, mm-hmm. I, it seems to me that the live versions they would do are, you know, lyrically, at least vocally, a little more in line with what they did in the studio with you. So I wonder if he sort of decided eventually he wanted to go back to the way he had it. Well, it might've also been just like, it's really hard to do it the way we wanted, we, like we imagined doing it. So it, it might take more time and more effort to get it out that way. Whereas the version that they worked on with me was like very first take sort of, yeah. you know, barked out kind of. I will say like th- there's so much uh, that's that's really cool about your version. I think to me the one thing that's objectively better about the one they uh, recorded at Inner Ear is the hand claps. Yeah. That's such a I brilliant agree. part of the song. Um, I talked to uh, Ted Nicely before about that. Um, according to him, the hand claps were Guy's idea. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad they ended up putting that in. Um, I was, I was watching some videos of them doing it live and 
occasionally, you know, they play the song live and you can see some of the people in the audience doing the hand claps along with that part uh, when it comes up. And I'm always like, these are my people. This that That's the right. guy I was at those shows. You've got to just do the hand claps along with it. Um, pure enthusiasm for that. Are you aware of the, uh, like, the lyrical content of this? It was discussed a little yeah. in uh, Joe Gross's book. Yeah, I mean, at the time, it was a fairly loose concept, but the idea was that um, kind of an extension of the idea where um, the state is, in, you know, like, wants you to rat people out, yeah. like, where cops want you to rat out anybody that you're, you know, people in your peer group. Like there are all kinds of inducements that are made to make people like if there's a case being built against somebody, they try to get one person to rat somebody else in the in the conspiracy out. They try to get try to play people against each other all the time. And, you know, they're like, what what if you're in a scenario where there's nobody that can can turn on anybody else? Well, what we need to do is we need, need to just pay people to hang around and observe things so that they can be public witnesses. Like they would be like an all purpose stool pigeon, you know? <laughs> right. And, uh, and it, you know, it's a fictional thing, but it has a, a real component. Yeah. Right. In, uh, in Joe Gross's book, he quotes Guy as saying that it's pure science fiction and uh, Guy says also, I think a lot of people thought it was supposed to be like witness protection program or something like that, which is not what it was. To me, it was like no, the government the program, opposite. which paid you to be a witness, but not a participant. Um, exactly. The idea is that you can, if there's nobody that can rat anybody out inside of a conspiracy, you create a scenario where everybody is a potential yeah. rat, you know. Like you just you you fund a program where everybody is a potential rat, and that and you know that's the public witness program. So I uh, I I actually I I think that's a pretty ambitious and really clever concept for a song. Like I yeah I admire that. It is, and also they say in the book a little about how it was somewhat of a joke to them. And it is kind of funny because I, people really think of Fugazi as this, you know, capital I issues band. And they, they write songs yeah. about real important issues. And they, they really sort of did a, did a fake out on this one. Um, and like when you think about the previous album to this, that the song in slot number two was Reclamation, which was like maybe their hugest issue song. Uh, but here it's just just sort of like a, a a flight of fancy almost i mean maybe it's rooted in a yeah i mean it has it yeah it's not trivial it's not fucking lizards you know <laughs> it's not like space lizards and teleportation it's like it it relates to it re- relates to like the genuine pressure that the police put on people to rat each other out you know right um and it's it's interesting to consider how that has aged um of course this was recorded in the early 90s and right now i mean i think there are a lot more public witnesses at least in terms of what what gets actually recorded um and yeah the i mean the the upshot of it is that the the future as imagined in that song has people being you know 
they're sort of being ubiquitous witnesses working for the police to put people away, as opposed to the way it is now, where they're ubiquitous witnesses that are therefore exposing the abuses of the police to the rest of us, you know. Exactly. Yeah, I was kind of of two minds about this. Um, I was uh, talking with some listeners uh, of the show who, who were writing in with their comments, and um, a lot of them were saying how you know the song is more true than ever. And I I gotta say I'm of I'm of two minds. You know, the whole thing with George Floyd um, would would that cop have ever been sentenced to jail time if there weren't an actual video recording of it? Like eyewitness accounts, be damned. I, I well, think no, not. of course not. I mean the. The only reason that there's any that there has been any accountability for any police misconduct has been specifically because people outside of the peer group of policemen have evidence as vi- video evidence of it. Like just witnessing it isn't enough. Yeah. Like just people seeing cops abusing people or killing people that means nothing. You have to have something ironclad. In order for in order for there to be there to be any chance of accountability, yeah, I was I was turning that over in my mind, and it it did bring to mind um, Rodney King, which of course happened before um, he wrote this song, um, and part of me always wondered if that at at all played a role in his writing of this. I I don't think so because I I get the idea from his delivery on this song that he's, you know, takes a negative view of this fictional public witness program. Um, but yeah. you know, it is something that came to mind as a famous instance of police brutality that was recorded and did cause major consequences. Right. But no accountability. Uh, something else just, uh, quickly that this brought to mind for me is, uh, I don't know if you watched the, the Netflix show black mirror, there's an episode called white bear where, uh, Everyone's uh, standing around just recording as as terrible things happen uh, to a person being terrorized. Um, it's a, I think it's a good point of comparison. If people haven't seen that show, go check out the episode White Bear. I'm unfamiliar, sadly, although I have friends who swear by it. So. If we can go back in time for a second uh, while I have you, you said that like Minor Threat was one of the only hardcore bands you really liked and uh, Rites yeah. of Spring, not so much. But do you remember your early impressions of Fugazi uh, whenever they first came together? And, um, I mean, obviously you liked them. Yeah, I mean, we had friends in common. Like, Corey Rusk from Touch and Go was an old running buddy of all the Discord people, and Minor Threat in particular. And uh, we both worked with John Loder at Southern in uh, London, and he was a good friend and a real sort of a mentor of mine. And he was sort of integral to Discord business in the overseas. And he was a good friend and of Ian's and he had recorded the band and like, he, you know, he'd done recordings of Fugazi and would travel on tour with them in England and that sort of stuff. Um, so socially, we were all sort of, we were in the same circles. And the more I crossed paths with them, the more, the more I liked hanging out with them. They were, I just thought they were intensely funny, good natured people. Um, there's a, a dice game that they were taught by the band citizen fish. 
that sort of became a talisman in our peer group. Like everybody, all of us played this dice game. It's called Kariki. And the, uh, Ian's current band is called Kariki, and it's named after that dice game. Yeah, at some uh, point I'd love to know how to play this game. I've, I've heard various stories about it over the years. Well, I can, I can explain it very simply if you like. It's a group, you have any number of people... And you you set up a number of lives in the game. A life a life meaning like if you lose a point, you lose a life. Right. Uh, so you have like a, a short game would be three lives. A long game would be five lives. And you um, you have two dice in a cup. And starting someplace, you somebody shakes the dice and looks under the cup and tells everybody else what the value of the dice is. The, the player to that person's right can then, if he doesn't believe that that's the value of the dice, like if he thinks that person is lying, he can pull the cup and expose the dice. And if he, ex- if he exposes the dice and the number does not correspond with what the guy told him, then the, the guy who rolled the dice and lied, he loses a life. Right. I actually think I've, I feel like I've heard of this before and under the name Liar's Dice. So this is sounding yeah, familiar. Yeah, it's a, it's a variation of the game Liar's Dice. Hmm. So then if the person who, if the next person believes him, that is, doesn't want to expose the dice, then, it, then he gets to roll. He has to roll. The, it gets tricky because each player, when the dice... When the, when the move is on him, you're allowed to pass, meaning you can pass it to the next player. And if the next player thinks that the first guy was lying, then he can pull the cup. Mm-hmm. And then you lose a life because you passed it to him. Right? Sounds good. If you pull the cup and the guy wasn't lying, well, then you lose a life because he wasn't lying and you accused him of lying. Um, but because everyone can pass... What typically happens is if the roll is a high number, um, you don't want to have to roll to try to. Uh, uh, the, the next person to roll has to roll the same number or higher. Right. Right. So if it's a high number, it's risky to roll the dice because then you're unlikely to roll a number that's that high, which means that you're most likely going to lose a life when the next guy pulls the cup on you. Right. Right. But um, so everyone can pass. And what typically happens is if the number is high, then everyone passes and it goes all the way around. It passes around to the original guy who can also pass. And if he passes, then it's exactly the same as it was in the beginning. It, you know, it goes back to the next guy. Um, so the, the, the person who originally rolled the dice, he knows, that person knows if they're lying. So if it passes around and he has the, that, the, uh, the first guy has the opportunity to pull the cup, he can do so with perfect information. Like he knows what's under the cup. There are all these little slang terms for different aspects of the game. Like if, if there's someone on your left and you want that person to lose a life, 
then you would declare a high number so that the cup would pass around back all the way back around to you and you could pull the cup on the person to your left. Oh, okay. And that's called hate mail when you do that. <laughs> um, there are slang terms for all the different possible combinations of roles. Um, with two dice, the the ultimate winning role is a kariki, and that's a, a one and a two, and that's named kariki. And if you roll a one and a two, that if if you roll a three, you just expose it. Then everybody at the table loses a life except you, and the person to your right loses two lives. So the the way it works is like you start by rolling. A point, and the point is the 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 lowest roll that you can roll is a three and a one. That's a four, right? Right. And then you roll five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Then the next highest roll after eleven is double one. Then double two, double three, double four, double five, double six is twelve or is box cars, right? Um, then the only higher role than a double six is a Kariki. I want to start a Kariki society at this point. It sounds like fun. Yeah, I get the appeal. What's amazing about the game is that like, you'll run into somebody who's learned the game from somebody who's learned the game from somebody who's learned it from somebody who's learned it. And all of these weird variations creep into it from the way the sort of oral tradition of it. And I love running into somebody who knows about this game and who plays it in a slightly different manner than the way we play it. I love the slang stuff too. Like that's that's almost half the fun of getting into any new game or hobby is like you get to learn all the jargon and uh you feel like a little yeah. bit of an insider in uh, in a secret society. My favorite my favorite evolution of the slang terms in Kariki is um double one in normal dice rolling double one is sometimes called snake eyes. Yeah. In Kariki, it's often called evil eyes or evil or Danzig, the most evil, <laughs> or sometimes mother, which is Danzig's most evil song. Right. <laughs> I love that. All right. I feel like I got a leg up for the first time I, uh, I get to play this game. If I can drag you back to Public Witness Program for just a second, sure. Uh, something we always do on this podcast is ratings. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? You know, everyone I talk to is a huge Fugazi fan, but what we try to do is, uh, in only in the context of the entire Fugazi catalog, we see if we can, out of one to five stars, give that song a rating. Um, just a totally subjective thing. Do you think you could do that for a Public Witness Program? Mm. I mean, it's it is one of the better high energy Fugazi numbers. I mean, if we assume that they have the the range of possible star values all exist in in the Fugazi alphabet. Exactly, like there has to be a one star Fugazi song, right? Or a zero star Fugazi song. If there has to be a zero star and there has to be a five star at a minimum, one of each. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a solid four. It's top-tier Fugazi material. I'm there with you. I personally got to go five. I think when I think about this song, it's one that 
if I was uh, seeing them live back in the day, I would be like, you know, for for the the entire set, I'd, I'd be happy with whatever they choose to play. The one thing I want to see is public witness program every time. You give them all fives, though, don't you? Be, be <laughs> honest. You give them all fives. I am on record, sir. You can go back through the archives, listen to the other episodes. I have been a little I'm bit not, harsh. I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> well, I'll let you go then. Um, I do like to give you a chance to do plugs. If you have any, you want to publicize anything you're working on at all? Yeah, I'm very uncomfortable with self-promotion. I'm not into it at all. Sorry. <laughs> I get that from you. No problem. Thanks so much, Steve. Honored to talk to you. It's It's been really fun. I agree. It's been fun. <laughs> okay. Thanks very right. much. Later. Bye-bye. So there it is, my talk with Steve Albini. Um, he's a busy man. I decided to let him go a little early, but I would like to uh, let our friends on social media weigh in with some of their thoughts. So... Chris McGarry said, if this song doesn't get a unanimous five, I will contact my attorney. Better get in touch, Chris. No unanimous five today, although it gets one for me, so I hope that's a good consolation prize. Dallin McDougal says, this is one of my fast driving songs. Also, while I'm glad the Albini sessions weren't the final versions, there's something about the energy in the Albini version that I feel like is missing on the final version. I can't quite put my finger on it, but maybe it's that it's closer to the energy of a live performance. Um, having said that, I still love the final version, and it's easily a top-tier Fugazi song for me. I'm uh, I'm on board with all that, Dallin. It's um, I, and I, I'm glad we could get Steve himself to weigh in on those sessions. John Farrar says, "Awesome concept for a song. Now we all have cameras. We're all public witnesses. The I like to walk around and I'm paid to stand around section is one of my favorite moments on In on the Kill Taker." Bradford Reed Goodwin says, "The Dead Kennedys influence is dialed up to eleven to glorious effect." Yes, that's absolutely something I forgot to say, but that I, that I had been thinking before. Um, yeah, Guy is doing some real Dead Kennedy stuff on this song. Cody McGrew says, more important today than ever before. Not to say it wasn't important before, but understandably with time, the fiction became fact. Jenna LaFleur says, this is one of the songs I often go to when introducing someone to Fugazi. Those hand claps are utterly infectious. Uh, ben Traub says, voice as percussion at the 106-107 mark. Man, I would love to know how many takes slash tracks are on that. The, <laughs> I, I almost, I don't want to do an impression of what Guy does there, but I agree that it's pretty awesome, and uh, and I do love that. And finally, Mike Farr says, first saw this song in April 93 in Vegas. Had not seen Fugazi since the repeater era. They played Great Cop and then Public Witness. I remember thinking for some reason that neither one sounded like Fugazi songs, whatever that meant to me at the time, and didn't really dig the new direction. After getting the album, I realized the error of my ways. So there you go. Uh, that's Public Witness Program. Hope you enjoyed that, guys. You can reach me at FugaziA-Z at gmail.com. Uh, if you feel like donating a few bucks to offset my hosting costs, the link for that is at the bottom of the show notes. There is no bonus content that everyone else doesn't have access to. All you get is the satisfaction that you helped out. So uh, if you feel like doing that, go for it. Uh, and I hope you'll join me on the next episode when we'll be discussing Recap Modati. Until then, keep your eyes open. <laughs>